Amen. If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 2. Braxton pointed out to me last week that every week I tend to come up on the stage right as you all are applauding. He's like, people probably think that's for you. And I'm like, nobody thinks that's for me. Amen. What a joy it is to be here today and to gather around the Word of God. And brother, what a fantastic song service this morning. Uh, uh, ushered us into the throne room, it felt like. That was wonderful. 1 John in chapter 2. If you're a guest here with us today, we're certainly thankful that you're here. Um, And if you don't have a Bible with you, there is one in the seat in front of you, hopefully. Um, And that is our gift to you. We could think of nothing greater to give you than a copy of God's Word. You'll find John's first letter, just a few pages to the left of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Join us in 1 John chapter 2. What we have learned in this section of chapter 2, starting in verse 18, is that there are false teachers that have gone out into the world, that false teachers have proliferated throughout the centuries from the time of Christ's ascension. So what does John say to a church that has a bunch of false teachers in her midst? He says, don't be distressed. Don't be surprised. This is a reality that you will face in a dark world that is in the power of the evil one. And you must pursue then, in the face of all of these false teachers, these antichrists, you must pursue pure doctrine, clear teaching. And he says, examine yourselves and watch God work. Watch God bring people into the body as you pursue truth because the anointing of God rests upon them and they desire the truth and watch God remove those false professors from your midst. That's what he tells us. He also goes on to say that there is a way in which he will bind together his church. With a multitude of false teachers, there can be uh, angst that we might be just hopelessly divided. And so we have to ask the question, what is it that will hold us together? And Paul, uh, excuse me, John comes and says, the anointing of the Holy One, the anointing of Christ upon His church. And uh, Bonner points out, I think most helpfully, that our Savior is both the One who anoints us and He is the unction inside of us by the work of His Spirit. If we are here this morning and we have called on the name of the Lord, if we have seen that Jesus is the Son of God, it is not of our own doing. It is because the the God of the heavens has anointed us and we cry out by the unction of His Spirit. In fact, we saw last week that as Peter is questioned by Jesus... Who do you say that I am? We see a very uh, clear picture of what this anointing does in the life of the apostle. Matthew chapter 16. Peter responds, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
We also see in verse 27, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. This is not an anointing that comes and goes. It is an abiding anointing. He holds his children fast. This anointing will not fail. Amen. The church is held together then, not by a bunch of teachers, not by pastors, Not by confessions, although those are helpful and good. The church is held together by God himself through the anointing of his own spirit. And so today, we look at the way in which we can fight, that we can contend earnestly, as Jude tells us, for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We see a, a, a methodology to pursuing The truth, some things to consider about what we should have as first priorities in our pursuit of pure doctrine. If we pay particular attention to verses 22, 23, 25, and 28, we will pick up much of what we should be about as a church. If you would, with that in mind, stand to do honor to the reading of the word of Almighty God. Starting in verse... 18, John writing here under the inspiration of the one who has hung every star in its place. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence And not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning as beggars. We are so dull of wit and we are so prideful in our spirit. Father, would you melt all of that away that we might behold wonderful things from your holy word. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. You may be seated. 
This is a pretty jolting statement that the Apostle here makes concerning those who are false teachers. He writes in verse 22, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? John John obviously didn't consult with any public relations firm prior to writing this letter. He obviously didn't go and find some of the thin-skinned individuals in our day who can't handle the truth. He comes right out with it. He calls those who oppose the church and who oppose her message, who dilute the truth, he calls them succinctly liars. And what makes this all the more startling this morning is the reality that this is the man who who has just encouraged us to be loving in the faith. And yet he stands and writes... Who are they that lie, but those that deny Jesus is the Christ? The the loving apostle stands flat-footed and calls an entire group of people liars. Now, this would never stand in our day. This kind of confrontation in the Scripture where John has just called others liars is so soft-pedaled in the preaching of this text in our generation. I think it's one of the reasons why expository preaching has fallen away altogether is because there are passages all throughout the New Testament like this one. And they're uncomfortable to preach if you don't stand for the truth. Calling people liars, our mamas have taught us, is not polite. And above all things, the church needs to be polite, right? I remember one of the most joyful times in my youth ministry, one of the uh, young people, I don't know if she's here this morning, but uh, she got a Sunday school lesson, and the, the lesson was about teaching the children that God wants us to be polite. And she was so frustrated. And she's a polite young lady. And she was frustrated because she's like, bear that out in the text. Show me where the Bible says that is our aim. And the moralistic streak in my own heart, I, I, well, of course you, you should be polite. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized this young lady was right. Uh, Politeness is not the ultimate aim of the church of Almighty God. Genuine redemption and glorifying God is our aim. Genuine worship in our lives. In our day, we have traded the truth for tolerance. Tolerance in the church today is the chief virtue. And here John shows little tolerance. The reality is, again, beloved, if we look all throughout the Scriptures, we will find that our apostles, those who handed the faith down to us, the faith once for all delivered the saints, they're not a bunch of tolerant people. In fact, in many ways, they're intolerant men. You'll remember in Galatians, as Paul speaks to the church, he begins the third chapter of his writing confronting these people, not that he hated, but that he genuinely loved this way. Oh, you foolish Galatians. That's not polite either. I promise you the PR guys wouldn't let you say something like that. And in the beginning of the the same letter, 
Paul writes, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach that you, uh, to you a gospel contrary to the one that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. I think that the word, excuse me, the word accursed is a little bit diluted even in the translation because of our politeness in this day. What he's saying is that if anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the definite article gospel, let him be damned. That's what he says. In fact, he says it twice in that particular passage. So it wasn't a slip of the tongue. Or what about in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, when Paul says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be damned. Lord, come quickly. Not a lot of tolerance there. In fact, many people I have heard throughout my time walking with the Lord will accuse Paul of being too hot-headed, too confrontational, too controversial. I think 2,000 years of people who have genuinely been born again would beg to differ with that characterization. In fact, it's not just Paul that speaks with such abruptness and clarity. John the Baptist... In Luke chapter 3, he says this, He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, there's a church growth strategy. Pastors stand up on Sunday morning and call the congregation a brood of vipers. It's pretty direct, isn't it? Here's the reality. Jesus also often was pointed in what he said. Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 through 28, as he's addressing the scribes and the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus makes plain his rebuke of hypocritical religion. In our generation, so many people fall into the category of being scribes and Pharisees not by their being unloving, but by their being tolerant of squandering the truth once for all delivered to the saints. You see, beloved, I believe in our day we will never, I don't think in any generation the church ever stands in danger of being accused of loving better than Jesus. But I do believe that we are in great danger uh, in this generation of being convicted, of being more tolerant than Christ ever was. Jesus is love. God is love. John will say that. Jesus was a man full of grace and truth. We have to remember that when Paul finds the church tolerating sin in her midst, the individual who was having an inappropriate relationship with his own mother-in-law and the church was was tolerating this Paul doesn't say great job Corinth 
Good, good job at being tolerant. In fact, Paul equates tolerance with arrogance. He says to tolerate sin and falsehood means that you are arrogant people. See, we don't need, beloved, this morning as we come to shy away from the rough edges of the Word of God, we need to submit our lives to those rough edges. So the question then has to be this. If John, the one who tells us to love one another in the body of Christ and to flee the world, if he uses such strong language as calling these people liars, and just to be clear, this Greek word doesn't merely denote that they're telling falsehood, although that's at the forefront. It also is an encapsulation of making an accusation to these individuals that they are at their core faithless people. They are individuals who cannot be trusted. And John calls them out for that reality. So why does he use such strong language? Now before we get to the answer to that question, we need to see that there are two causes that we need to delineate for why we would rebuke someone else. We know that in the Word of God, we are called to turn the other cheek. But here, John doesn't turn the other cheek. John calls a spade a spade. And why? Because there are different varying kinds of offenses. There are those offenses that are leveled against you and I, personally. There are those kinds of offenses that take issue with us as individuals. And those offenses are offenses that we are called in the name of Jesus Christ to endure with patience and humility. But then there are those offenses that are offenses against the truth. They are offenses against the gospel. They are offenses against doctrine. They are offenses ultimately against the person of Christ Himself. And those offenses are not to be tolerated. They are to be made plain. And that is what John is doing here. When, when John's name, when his reputation, when his life is on the line, there is no sacrifice great enough for him to reject humbling himself before humanity for the glory of Christ. He doesn't, he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't call people liars about his own personal reputation. But when the name or the reputation or the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is attacked, John is a man that will surrender nothing of those things. Not one iota. When the glory of God is at stake... Godly men and women will rise to that challenge to speak the truth of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And that is what John is doing here. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Now we can't hit this button too quickly and I'm afraid that in our generation where we are so good at argumentation and debate and twittering and all of the other things, I was going to try and ramble off a bunch of the social media things, but I'm not with it enough to know, so see Brian after the service, he'll give you the list. <laughs> we must not hit this button too quickly, we must not go on the attack over our preferences, we must not build around our particular label 
a, a, a tendency to call other people liars. We, we aren't to just defend our own sacred cows. Um, we are only to take this posture of, of, of being pointed when there are matters of great importance at stake, when, when there are issues such as church structure or end times or modes of baptism, I believe that we should show Christian charity. Now, I, I don't think that it's wrong for individual churches to take stands on those issues, but we must show Christian charity and not be too sharp in our Rebuke. So we must distinguish between ourselves and the truth, and we will fight for the truth, not for ourselves. And we must distinguish between core doctrine and the more subtle differences of opinion inside Christendom. We, want, we, we ultimately then find this. We don't go to war over ourselves or tertiary matters, but we will defend and contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Friends, one of the, can somebody give me some water? If Paul is back there, thank you. Um, one of the things that I think is so telling about a particular congregation is what makes that congregation angry. What makes the deacon board mad? What makes the little ladies, uh, 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 one of my friend calls in the church, uh, don't be mad at me, um, just sharing truth this morning. A uh, brother of mine calls um, the little old ladies in the church the little old lady brigade. Um, what makes that group of individuals um, upset and angry? See, far too often I think that the reason that the church is so divided over things like church, uh, carpet color and just to be clear, the reason why we have gray carpet in our sanctuary at Life Point Baptist Church is simply this. We can all agree that it's ugly. <laughs> Problem solved. No argument. Uh, but the reason that we are so short-sighted and the reason... One of the things that used to just discourage my heart... I grew up in a town where our Baptist church knew how to divide over the stupidest things... And, and, and I think I've told you this before, but one of those divisions uh, went out on the side of our little town of 2,500 and built a church and they named themselves Unity Baptist Church. It was a mockery of the faith to that community for 25 years. Why is that? Can I tell you why the church goes to war over things like carpet and budgetary matters and, and whatever? It's because we're not actually contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I can tell you this, that when the glory of God is before a church, we can worship with shag green carpet in our churches. Let's not test that, but it's possible. Beloved, we need to be careful about what makes us angry. Well, what should make us angry is when individuals come into the congregation of the Lord and unload all of their preferences on the church. Because the church is not made to bear your preferences. The church is made to glorify God. So the only reason that John here calls these Gnostics liars is because they have attacked and undermined core doctrine. 
John really gives us why he calls these people liars peppered throughout the text. He he goes on to explain subtly in this text why it is he is on the offense, why it is that he's calling them liars. And the first reason that he's calling them liars is what these people were saying was categorically contrary to the facts. John Adams helpfully said, one of our early presidents, facts are those stubborn things. And they're things that don't care about your preferences. They don't care about your feelings. And what these people are doing, John has said, is teaching contrary to plain facts. John had opened his letter, 1 John, um, explaining that his teaching was not based on mysticism, but on a plain, a clear teaching of the facts that he understood. In, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He is saying, what I'm going to tell you is rooted in firsthand fact. It's not about conjecture. And and John was an individual who had seen the transfiguration. John had been there when they heard the voice saying that this of God, that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. John had known that Jesus was truly God and truly man. He understood the doctrine of divinity. And what these people were teaching was a lie. They, They taught that the eternal part of Christ descended upon Jesus at his baptism but departed before the crucifixion therefore the crucifixion was only to the body of the man Christ but not to the divinity and so if John stands here and and says these people have no clue what they're talking about they're liars and in the face of such audacious lies there's nothing else that's appropriate John would say this morning, look, I was there, when, when, I was there in the upper room when, when Jesus told Thomas in John chapter 21, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it into my side. See the wounds that I bore in my body for the sins of those who would call upon my name. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He was there when Thomas responded to that interaction. My Lord and my God. This was no mere man. He would say, I I was there as Jesus showed up in our midst as they were talking, Luke chapter 24, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and, though, and, and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do, you doubt, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. John is telling these people, look, this Gnostic heresy that attacks the person of Christ is just contrary To the facts. There was nothing, again, that was reasonable for him to do but to call out in strong language the reality that these individual teachers were liars. Now, there are multitudes of other teachers throughout church history that end up being deceivers and liars. There there are those in the past hundred years that so many pastors said as German higher criticism... 
And as the demythologizing of the Bible came about, there, there, there were individuals that said, you know, with so much scientific advancement and so much knowledge and all of these things, uh, we can't fight against modern man's ability to reason out that the, 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 the supernatural things of the Bible just, they can't be true. One of the, the great examples of this kind of higher criticism and demythologizing is a man named Rudolf Boltmann. And he would, this, he was an interesting guy. He would preach sermons that would leave people in tears. Entire congregations of, of people would be stirred emotionally. But if you were to ask him at the sidebar, do you actually believe that the word of God is inerrant and true? He would say no. I think it's beneficial for humanity, but I believe that it's fraught with errors. And I don't believe the supernatural things. In fact, this is a quote directly from him. We cannot use electric lights and radios and in the event of illness, avail ourselves to modern medical clinical means and at the same time believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. Rudolf Boltmann is a liar. We can avail ourselves to modern science and medicine and at the same time contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints to believe every word of God's revelation. We must, in fact, to a certain degree, become intolerant people. I'm not saying we have to be disagreeable, but we have to stand where we stand on the Word of God. You see, people all the time take God's Word and they will manipulate it just a little bit this way or a little bit that way to fit their religious systems. One of the, the great realities of the church is men will stand in the pulpit, they'll begin to preach the truth, and then that truth is going to cost them something. And what men typically do when the truth starts costing something is they say, okay, I'll come up with a solution to the problem the truth presents. Bad idea. Preach the truth boldly and allow God to work amongst His people. The people of God have never been gathered around the wisdom of men. It is only around the things of God. So it's not only that what they were teaching is factually untrue, although it was, it's also that he wants these individuals and you and I to consider the consequences of doctrinal error, of what they were teaching. So he goes on in verses 22 and 23, Who is the liar but he who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Believing this lie, John says, it ultimately lands in a multitude of consequences. And the first consequence is this. It, you will deny the person of Christ. You will deny the Son, the doctrine of the Incarnation. Ultimately, what you will deny is all of what Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 2. You'll remember when Paul is encouraging the church to show humility. He writes, having this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. God, Jesus was truly God and truly man. And here, 
John is saying, if you believe this Gnostic heresy, if you believe this higher knowledge garbage, you are ultimately going to wind up denying the doctrine of the Incarnation. And in fact, it will undermine entire sections of the Gospels. It will deny the reality of the genuine bodily agony of Christ in the garden. It will deny the suffering of Christ on the cross for our sins. It will deny the reality of Him volitionally giving up the ghost. Somebody sent me a, a bumper sticker this week. Of a, it was a picture of a handgun and it said underneath of it, if Jesus had a handgun, He would still be alive today. How absolutely stupid. Now, I'm a Second Amendment guy to the hilt, but that's absolutely nonsensical. Jesus laid his life down for the sheep. And believing this Gnostic heresy ultimately denies the person of Christ. And in in denying the person of Christ, the domino effect is you deny the work of Christ. Christ has been made flesh. and, And he was made flesh for a particular work. What was that work? He came into the world to atone for the sins of all of those who would believe on Him. He came into the world that He would redeem those the Father had given Him and on the last day that He would not lose one of them. And it is that work that you will subtly start to fall away from believing, John says. Now he couldn't do this work if he were a mere man. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 14 And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. You remember that uh, argument from Paul surrounding the resurrection of Christ. If Christ is not raised, then your faith is in vain. John is taking a more elementary part of that argument. If Christ is not Christ, your faith is in vain. Not only is the person of Christ attacked in this doctrinal heresy, also the work of Christ. Not only does this deny the person of Christ and the work of Christ, it ultimately will land you in denying the Father Himself. You remember here, the, this is the Antichrist in verse 22. He who denies the Father and the Son. If you have denied the Son, you have no way of actually knowing the Father. You remember John uh, writing, uh, Jesus speaking in John chapter 14 verses 6 and 7. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do do know him and have seen him. What Jesus is saying here is that he is the only way to the Father. Friends, you can believe in a creator this morning. You can believe in the big fella upstairs. You can believe in a, a higher authority. You can believe in a lot of things about God, but without knowing Jesus Christ, you do not know the Father. Not only do those who lose the person of Christ and the work of Christ lose the Father, the person of the Father, but they also lose the promises of the Father. Think about all, and anecdotal, like all throughout Scripture, God makes promises. Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, he tells us that every one of the hairs on our head are numbered. That he loves us in a very unique and comforting way. That every aspect of our life is under his sovereign care and love. He tells us that he works all things together for his own glory and for the good of those who are called according 
to his purpose. But without the doctrine of the incarnation, without the doctrine of the divinity of Christ, all of that is lost. In fact, I think that what more in a near context John is aiming at that we will lose theologically, doctrinally, is our fellowship with God altogether. Remember, John's argument is that we are of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And I'm writing that you might have joy, and that joy only comes in the fellowship that you have with God the Father and God the Son. So as these doctrines are flushed down the toilet, you lose your fellowship with God. You deceive yourself, beloved, this morning. If someone says to you, I just love Jesus, I don't care about doctrine, mark it down. They are de- they're deceived themselves or they are a capital L liar. Because there is no loving Jesus and loving the Father without clarity about who the Son of God is and what it is that He came to do. So we lose the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the person of the Father, the promises of the Father. What we wind up losing altogether is this, the Trinity. And John says that's no subtle loss. There is a reason that I'm calling these people liars and that is because they are obfuscating who the triune God is. And because I love you, because I am an apostle that cares for you, I am going to call them out for who they are. May God raise up a generation of preachers who are willing to call out Stephen Furtick and Joyce Meyer and all of the other knotheads that are claiming to stand in the pulpit for the glory of Christ all the while all they're doing is robbing people of their money. And call them by name. So many times I've been castigated by people. You need to be polite and not mention names. That will offend people. It also will inform people. And these liars really do harm. They really obscure who the triune God is and what He's doing and why He sent His Son and what we have to look forward to. We must not be loose with our doctrine and theology. We must pursue pure doctrine. And we must defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. See, the reality is I don't know the Father until I've come to know the Son. And it is only when I know... Uh, it is only when I am in the Son that I can know the Father. And it is only by the work of the Spirit that I come to know the Son. Without the Son and without the Spirit and without the Father, we ultimately lose everything. Because here's the reality. And if if someone has taught you something contrary to this, God help them and God help you to see the truth. And that is this. The Word of God is not about building religious kingdoms and denominations. The Word of God declares clearly that the Father planned redemption before the foundation of time and set His love upon His church. And the Son was sent at the fullness of time and He accomplished redemption with the shedding of His blood. And in our generation, from the time of Christ's sacrifice, even yet, the Spirit is at work applying the work of redemption to individuals building the church of Christ. The work of redemption from beginning to end is God's, not man's. 
And anyone that preaches contrary to that is, with all certainty and kindness, a liar. See, the reality is, if Jesus, if God the Father, if the Son are not the ones doing the work of redemption from start to finish this morning, it's not about denomination or theology. If that be not true, we of all men are to be most pitied. Because there is no way we would ever come in our spiritual lethargy to a holy God. Men love the darkness rather than the light. And some people have built theologies that say, yeah, but give me enough time and I'll come to the light on my own. So you're saying that when, when the Son of God declares clearly that men love the darkness over the light, that you yourself are the one exception to that. Nonsense. It was Jesus who purchased you with His blood. It is the Spirit who has applied that to you and it only happened because the Father decreed it before the foundation of the earth. You might pick up that I'm a little passionate about that. But it's because in not seeing those things, the church has squandered away so much of her birthright in our generation. And I'm okay with you slandering me I'm okay with you taking issue with my ability to preach, but I'm not okay with you messing with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that we've considered all of the negative consequences, let's take a few moments and consider the positive consequence. Look in verse 25. John writes... And this is the promise, the promise from the Father that He made to us, eternal life. John says, don't believe lies about Jesus because at the end, if you believe lies about Jesus, you will ultimately prove yourself to be an individual who has never received the anointing of the Spirit of God to belief in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, you won't have eternal life. There's a consequence to believing the truth. If you believe that the Son of God came in the flesh, then, there, and, and th- then, then ultimately you, you come to believe that there is this union between God and man. And that union is first and primarily in Christ. And it is in that work of who Christ is that we have the ability for the redemption of our souls. The Spirit has anointed you to belief. By the work of Christ, uh, uh, the person of Christ, according to the will of the Father. The, The positive consequence to believing pure, truthful doctrine in the church today is this, eternal life. Now I'm not saying that we receive eternal life by being theologically accurate. What I am saying and what I think John is saying is that as we continue to hear the Word of God proclaimed, the anointing of the Spirit of God in us will show an unction in the direction of what is true. And we should never think lightly about one single word found in the canon of Scripture. That doesn't mean we have to be argumentative and again there are tertiary issues that we must show Christian charity over. But there are some issues that I think we've shown charity over for far too long. 
We have this promise of eternal life. And there is no way under heaven that you will ever convince me that that eternal life either begins or ends or depends upon me. It is only because of what Christ has done. See, there's this reality that we have stopped considering the truth before the face of God in the church. We have altogether become a a people in our nation and and on our society that think little of the truth of the Word of God. Well, does it really matter is our favorite question in the church today. But you know, truth only matters little when you put it before the faces of men. When you put truth before a holy God, it's infinitely valuable. It matters much. John writes here finally of the, of the reality of where the truth is going to land. The truth will not land in a university somewhere. You are not the final determiner of truth. The greatest denominations may rise up in our day of, of charismaticism, of all kinds of other false teaching, Jehovah's Witness and Latter-day Saints, those false systems of religion may prevail and many people may define truth according to men in those spheres. But here we come face to face with where the truth will finally be determined. Verse 28, And now little children abide in Him, so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in in shame at His coming. Man thinks that he's doing no small injustice when he obfuscates the truth of the Word of God. He thinks that he will get away with it. He thinks that uh, uh, that loading up burdens on other people and adding to the law and saying you must dress this way and listen to this kind of music and be a good fundamentalist is no small thing. And maybe in the sight of men, it is a small thing. He thinks that watering down the truth is no issue. He thinks that handing over the sovereignty of God to a bunch of academics who might uh, give us a little bit more comfortable understanding of who God is in that department, is okay. He thinks that error over the person and the work of the triune Godhead will go unnoticed. But here, clearly, John stops everyone in their tracks and he says the day is approaching when we will stand face to face with the unrelenting truth found in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because there will be a day when you stand face to face with one in whom there is no capacity for untruth. You will stand before the one in whom there is no darkness at all. You better pursue pure doctrine. Because on the day that you stand before Jesus, if you have bought into lies about the person of Christ and the work of Christ and the person of the Father and the promises of the Father and the work of the Spirit, you will shrink back in shame. Does doctrine matter this morning? Doctrine not only matters this morning, doctrine has mattered all throughout human history and it matters eternally. You see, the reality is the reason that the church has lost her gravitas, 
The weight of what it is that Christ has done. The reason that worship is so watered down is because we have forgotten that we do theology, we do worship, we do doctrine, we do everything quorum Deo before the face of Almighty God. Beloved, some have taken issue, and this is not a secret by this point. If it is, wake up. Some have taken issue with the fact that the Bible, not I, plainly teach that the Father decreed salvation of all of those who would believe upon the name of Christ before the foundation of the world. That Jesus completed the work necessary for the redemption and that the Spirit is applying that work without the help of fallen men. Is building His church by the work of His Spirit. Does He include us in proclaiming the Gospel? Does He do work through us? Absolutely He does. And that should not be denied. But the reality is, God intended to save a people, and He's saving them. Jesus died for a people, and He really did atone for them. And the Spirit is coming after the church, and He's really gathering every one of them. You see, Jesus said it plainly in John chapter 6, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Friends, you can argue the sovereignty of God and human salvation before men all throughout your lives if you want to. But when you stand before the face of the Lord Jesus Christ in His holy splendor, not one person in this congregation will have the audacity to say, Jesus, you tried to save everyone, but only saved a few. You see, the only right place for us to delineate truth from error is not face to face with each other. The only place for us to take our doctrine for determination is before the face of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you today so thankful for your grace, so thankful that in spite of our dim wit and our unrelenting desire to puff ourselves up according to our own will, that you have shown the love of Christ towards us, that you have opened our blinded eyes and shown us that we need Christ. And so we fled to Christ out of what you have done by the working of your Spirit. Father, we're so thankful for that. And if there's one here today who's confused about those truths, Father, I pray in the gentle way that only you can, that you would open their eyes to the truth. Father, I pray for the one that's here today that doesn't know you, who is still dead in their trespasses and sins, that you would make them alive unto salvation. I pray that you would pull the veil from their face, that they would behold wonderful things from your word, that they would hear the clear teaching of repentance and faith and believing on Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Father, would you do what only you can do and bind your church together together? 